morning, everyone. Thank you to Cindy for navigating what is a tricky passage to read in some respects with all of its uh, repetition and uh, strange names. Actually, three stories form the backdrop to what I want to say this morning. Um, the one that we've heard to us from Daniel chapter 3 and two others, which I'm going to describe very briefly to you now. Here's the second one. Some of you will have heard, I'm sure, of Corrie ten Boom, who, with her family, helped many Jewish people escape from the Nazis during the Holocaust, Holocaust by hiding them in, her, in their home. And at some point, the family was informed on. Corrie and her sister, Betsy, were sent to the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, and that's where Betsy died. Twelve days later, Corrie was released as a result of a clerical error. And a week later, all of the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. And then here's the third story. Elie Wiesel was a Nobel laureate, another Holocaust survivor, author of 57 books. And one of his novels, Night, is autobiographical. It tells a story of, of an adolescent boy who was taken with his family and the other Jews who lived in the Romanian village where they were to the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz and then later transferred to Buchenwald. And that's where the boy saw his parents and his younger sister along with most of the people he had grown up with, walk into the gas chambers and not walk out again. And this is what he wrote. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things. Never. Three stories with different outcomes. So in the first one, God's people are miraculously delivered. In the second, one of God's people is delivered. She's delivered by a a remarkable coincidence, perhaps, if you have no faith or by God's use of natural means, if you do. But many more people suffer and die. Her faith is tested and strengthened, and she goes on to tell her story and inspire millions. And in the third story, a few survive. Many more suffer and die, and one survivor's stories also influence millions, but his faith is shattered. Like the three men in our story in Daniel 3, we all have our furnaces to go through. They're not literal furnaces or literal gas chambers, 
but they are very real to us, very painful to us. And sometimes they can be life-shattering. So my question this morning is, what kind of faith do we need in these circumstances? Even though the astonishing deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego is exceptional, there are nonetheless some lessons that we can learn, take away to help us in our time of testing. In particular, three things I want to draw to your attention this morning. Three things about their faith that we can learn from. And the first is that it was a confident faith. He can. The God we, are, the God we serve, verse 17, is able to deliver us. That's the first point, that God is able. This is Christianity 101, so to speak. If you can't believe that God is able, that he can, then you either have little faith in God or no faith in God because either you don't believe he exists or the God you believe in is powerless to intervene in situations and really not worthy of the title of divinity at all. But a quick scan of the Bible encourages us to believe that God can, that he is able And there are all sorts of reminders about what exactly he's able to do. These are just some I picked up. Um, That's the wrong slide. Oh, did I jump there? Got one there. These are just some that I noticed quickly scanning through the he is able passages uh, in the Bible. So he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. He's able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, to deal, deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, to help those who are being tempted, to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to bless you abundantly, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, and to open the scroll and its seven seals. Those are just some of the phrases that, that we find in our Bible when it says, He is able to... Our God is able. And before she died, her sister Betsy told Corey, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. God is able. And this came as a surprise to Nebuchadnezzar. Do you notice he went from what God will be able, in verse 15, to no other God can save in this way, verse 29. This is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, not necessarily to full Christian faith, Jewish faith, but a conversion nevertheless from uh, a concept in God to a belief in a God who is able. You see, Nebuchadnezzar would have had the same faith, I'm sure, um, as his fellow Babylonians. They believed that Marduk was the supreme god of the, of, of the Babylonians. There was Nurgle, the god of the underworld, and Tiamat, the goddess of the sea. And he probably accepted these gods without question, as we so often do with our cultural assumptions and beliefs. But he didn't believe in a god who could save from the blazing furnace. That was, that was just nonsensical in his view, that there could be a God who could do such a thing, that God was able to do that. And that is how the Christian faith can appear to us until suddenly something shattering happens 
to explode that worldview. And suddenly we come to a place where we, we see actually God is able. And that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He went from, ah, don't believe in that kind of stuff to, whoa, God is able. God can. This is the faith that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had. A confident faith that he can. That's the first thing um, to take away from this morning. The second is this, that they had a humble faith. He will. He will deliver us, but even if he does not. There is a triumphant kind of faith that leaves no room for the but. And history is littered with countless tragic stories of men and women were certain they were going to be rescued, certain they were going to be healed, who refused help, refused medicine, closed their ears to anyone who suggested that God might not, and interpreted that as some kind of lack of faith. But we don't see that in these three men. Their faith is bold, their faith is confident, their faith is courageous, but it leaves room for the possibility that they might be mistaken, but even if he does not. Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the uh, favourites in the Bible, one of those great chapter 11s in the Bible, rightly put forward as a go-to chapter about faith. And in Hebrews 11, the writer describes some of the exploits of the heroes, heroes of faith. Um, and he goes on to say this, And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. It's an incredibly stirring account of the faithful. Our friends appear there in verse 34. Daniel appears there in verse 33. We'd love to be part of stories of faith like this, wouldn't we? Let's be honest, we would love to be part of stories of faith like this. But the writer goes on. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite so keen to be part of one of these stories of faith as I was in the first category. And yet the writer concludes these were all commended for their faith. Those who were rescued and those who weren't. Those who saw miracles and those who didn't. They were all commended for their faith. Because faith isn't revealed by a positive or hoped-for outcome. Faith is revealed by its persistence in clinging to God, whatever the outcome might be. Now, I want to be around those who are confident that God will. True faith comes 
uh, from hearing God, and I want to be around those who are hearing God. I believe our three friends heard from God. But at the same time, and along with G.K. Chesterton, in his, who said in his hymn, O God of earth and altar, I want to be delivered from all the easy speeches that comfort. The words that promise something that God hasn't promised. The words that leave no room for the humble but. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had a confident faith. He can, but also a humble faith. He will, but even if he doesn't. And then finally, they expressed a loyal faith. We won't. We will not serve your gods. This is a faith that's made its choice to follow God no matter what. And I was reminded of it last week, actually, in Ellen's uh, message, another famous chapter, another famous 11th chapter, John chapter 11, the account of the raising of Lazarus. Mary, you may remember, had rushed out to meet Jesus, who was arriving four days after the death of her brother and, and his burial. And do you remember the first thing that happens as far as Mary is concerned? She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Mary has no idea what is about to happen next. As far as Mary is concerned, her brother Lazarus is dead and buried. That is the end of the story at this point. And yet, she falls down at Jesus' feet. She's made her choice. It doesn't matter to her that tragedy has struck at the heart of her family. She is not going to throw in her faith just because of what has happened. She has made her choice. She has committed herself to Jesus. That's what loyal faith looks like. Now, of course, the story goes on from there. But at that point, she expresses her loyalty. Here's another story. I told this story some time ago here. Um, but it's the story of a Canadian missionary called Jonathan Goforth, missionary to China, and the conversion of a young man called Chang San. And Chang San asked Jonathan um, what he ought to do with his newfound faith. And Jonathan said, well, the first thing you ought to do, go back to your home and um, tell your parents that you've become a Christian. Now, Chang San's father was nicknamed Fury. And when Chang San went home, his father beat the living daylights out of him. He came back to Jonathan, go forth afterwards, and asked him, Okay, so what is step number two? That's another expression of loyal faith. He made his choice. No matter what was going to happen, he had made his choice. In 1946, let's just go back one. Oh, oh, having clicker troubles this morning. There we go. 1946, Corrie ten Boom returned to Germany and met with two Germans who'd been employed at Ravensbrück, and one of whom had been particularly cruel to her sister, Betsy. And in one of her books, she describes how at the end of a meeting, this man came up to her, he'd 
He expressed the fact that he'd found his own personal faith in Christ and he extended his hand to her and asked her for forgiveness. And this is what she writes, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Really, I'm having trouble with the clicker. There we go. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. But it started with a choice. It started with a, a loyal faith. This is what it's right to do. There was no going back. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had made their choice. They didn't know how things were going to pan out in, in the furnace. They believed God would rescue them, but they didn't know. They left room for that but. But even if they weren't rescued, we won't serve your gods was their line in the sand. And at the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar's words are a testament, testimony to their loyalty. They were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. So we have these three things, a confident faith he can, a humble faith he will, but even if he doesn't, and a loyal faith, we won't. And this is the faith that I observe in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a faith that's not dependent on outcomes. It's a faith that is nailed its colours to the mast, come what may. Now, our three friends have a happy ever after, happy ever after story, don't they? They, they even get promoted. They, they end up in a better place at the end than they were at the beginning. But that's not always our experience. What comes our way can be shattering. Corrie ten Boom's faith wasn't shattered, but she still lived with the grief of her sister's death. Ellie Wiesel's faith took a massive hit. And some people are so rocked by life's circumstances that they never recover. And you might be in that place now outwardly going through the motions because that's what you're familiar with. You're familiar with the routine of coming to church. But in reality, currently detached from God because of something that's happened to you in the past. Or maybe you are just clinging on by your fingernails, wanting to believe, wanting that faith of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, but struggling or maybe you know someone in that situation, someone who's just barely hanging on. And it's into that context that I want to share the end of Ellie Wiesel's story. Because I read about this recently at a talk he gave at a conference. And this is 
this is what the writer is recounting. That's Elie Wiesel there. When he appeared on the lecture platform with neither explanation nor apology, he began by reading Genesis 15, the story of Abraham, and spent the next hour leading us an absolutely secular audience of seven or 800 people in what was essentially a Bible study. He said, nothing is worthwhile compared to this. Searching scripture, asking questions of the text, seeking the truth of God's word. He was passionate. He was intense. He made frequent references to prayer. He was full of faith in the living God. He didn't tell us how it had happened. But he was evidence that it does happen, that a person can go through the worst. Lose every vestige of hope. Have every shred of faith pulled away from the soul, leaving it bare and shivering in a world where all the evidence says that God is dead. Live through that and become a person of faith again. Excuse me. Become convinced that nothing else is worth anything compared to the discovering compared to discovering the truth and reality of God. We don't know how Elie Wiesel got to that place. But it's, I think it's a bit like it's one of these pots. You come across these kintsugi pots or bowls where they take the, the shattered pieces and they put them together again um, with gold to make them something beautiful. And that story and other stories like that should give us hope. It's not a hope that everything is going to turn out as we would like it to turn out. Yes, we do have the testimony of encountering God and being miraculously preserved in the middle of an impossible situation. We've got stories like that. Maybe that will be our experience. But if not, there is still hope that God in his time, in his way, will act and bring light in the darkness. There's a strong tradition that suggests that the fourth man in the furnace was Christ himself. This same Christ who sometimes rescues us from the furnace once applied a prophecy to himself from Isaiah 61. So I want to close with these words. Let them sink into your heart and mind. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is the one in whom we are invited to place our confident, humble and loyal faith. Amen.